verses 1 to 26. Acts 11, verses 1 to 26. Let us hear the word of God. And just before this begins, this is, um, the preceding chapter is about Peter having seen this vision of the sheet with the animals in it, and then he is directed to go to Cornelius' household and preaches the gospel to them, what is a Gentile household, and the Holy Spirit falls on them, and he baptizes them. But then he goes, goes back to Jerusalem, and the church of Jerusalem has heard what has happened at Cornelius' household, and that's where this chapter picks up in um, chapter 11. And the apostles and the brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him, saying, Thou wentest into men uncircumcised, and did eat with them. But Peter rehearsed the matter from the beginning, and expounded it by order unto them, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. A certain vessel descended, as it had been a great sheet, let down from heaven by four corners, and it came even unto me. Upon the which, when I had fasted mine eyes, I considered and saw four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered into my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God hath cleansed, that call not thou common. And this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. And behold, immediately there were three men already come unto the house where I was, sent from Caesarea unto me. And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house, which stood and said unto him, Send men to Joppa, and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words whereby thou and all thy house shall be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them, as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he had said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us, who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now, they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, and Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to none but the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which, when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas, that he should go as far as Antioch, who, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad, and exhorted them all, that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. 
For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Let us now sing in response to this text, Psalter 240. I am sure you're all very familiar with the Great Commission, right? When Jesus tells his disciples right before his ascension into heaven, how they are to go into all the world and making disciples of all nations. Now imagine being one of those disciples and hearing that commandment. You can well imagine being overwhelmed, can't you? Who, who am I? Who are we to go and bring this great commission about? How are we going to do that? But as we well know, before Jesus sends them off into the world, he tells them first, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And, and so they do, and they go back to Jerusalem. And the next thing that we read in the book of Acts is Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit came down in power and manifested Himself. And there's two things that the Spirit here is communicating. First of all, He is affirming that great commission. By saving 3,000 souls on this, this feast, this feast of the first fruits, He is indicating that there's going to be a much greater harvest still, a harvest that would expand far beyond the borders of Israel and indeed go to all the corners of the earth. But what the Holy Spirit is also communicating in these miracles, in the tongues of fire and in the speaking of different languages, He is saying to the church, I am with you. I am going to empower you to bring about that great harvest. You do not have to go out there in your own strength. So that the church of Jerusalem understood. But how? How were they going to bring about this great commission? That was something where there was still quite a bit of confusion. How do we know that? But we read about this, this church in Jerusalem. What was so prevalent still was this Old Testament emphasis on drawing in the Gentiles. They were supposed to be this peculiar community that was greatly blessed of the Lord so that the surrounding nations, the surrounding Gentiles, could look at them and desire to be part of that community and desire to have that God to be their God as well. But in order to become part of that community, those Gentiles essentially had to become Jews. They had to start following the Old Testament laws, the Levitical laws. They had to be circumcised. 
And indeed, there were, in those days, there were Gentiles who had taken those steps. And they had become Jews, and they would be referred to as proselytes. But is this how the Great Commission was going to come about? By going into this world, by making disciples and turning them into Jews? Because that's not what we're doing today. So the question is this. What was it that would eventually turn a Jewish religion into a Christian church as we know it today? And as we'll see this evening is the church of Antioch will come to reveal unto us how. And as they reveal this unto us, we also come to see indeed how that great commission was going to be brought about and how that still applies to us this evening. So our text is Acts 11, verses 19 to 26. And this is the passage about the church in Antioch reaching out to the Gentiles. And I'm not going to read this right now again, but we'll be following this passage really closely. So I can recommend that you keep your Bibles open as we go through this text. So our theme for this evening is from Judaism sect to Christian church. And by Judaism sect, I do not mean that the early Christians, the followers of Jesus, were really a sect. But this was the label that was put upon them by the outward, by the Jewish community. They called them Nazarenes, followers of Jesus. And also, Christian church was not something that the followers of Jesus essentially called themselves initially. It was a label. It was, again, a label that was put upon them by the community abroad, the outside community. So here we see from Judaism sect to Christian church with three points. The initiative to evangelize the Gentiles blessed. We will see this from verse 19 to 21. Secondly, the work of the Spirit among the Gentiles recognized, verses 22 to 24. And thirdly, the Christian church established, verse 25 and 26. So first of all, we see the initiative to evangelize the Gentiles blessed. So what exactly had happened? We need to take a closer look at the events that preceded what we read in our passage. Children, I'm sure you're all familiar with the story about Stephen, the deacon who went out to preach. And the Jewish authority were so angry with him that they stoned him to death. And right after that, there was a great persecution and a lot of the early believers were now leaving Jerusalem and even going outside of the boundaries of historical Israel. And by God's providence, essentially, they ended up in Gentile areas. We read about uh, Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, and Cyprus, and Syria, and Antioch. What we also read proceeding to our passage is Peter. Peter, who had this vision of this sheet with the animals in it that was 
that was, that, that was lowered in front of him, and he heard the voice, and it tells him to eat of it, and he doesn't quite know what to do with it. But then he gets called to go to Cornelius' household. Now, Cornelius was a Gentile, a Roman, and he was not a proselyte either. So Peter goes to his house, Something which, according to Jewish rituals, he was not supposed to do. But the Spirit tells him, don't doubt it, Peter, go. And he goes to the house of Cornelius, and he preaches the gospel to his household, to his family. And he sees the Holy Spirit descending upon these people. And he's so impressed that he immediately baptizes them right there and then. And then Peter gets called back to Jerusalem. Peter There comes a question out of the church. Peter, what were you doing there? And then, of course, Peter gives his testimony about what happened. And essentially, he's saying, the Holy Spirit was driving me to do this. Who am I to object? And as the church in Jerusalem hears these words, hears this testimony, they draw this this incredibly important and magnificent conclusion, as you can read in verse 18. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. This is a momentous moment in the early church when they recognized this. But then our passage goes back to... Then we arrive at our passage, and the story now goes back to these, these, these believers who have been driven out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and here they are in Phoenicia, Phoenicia, and they are in Cyprus, and some of them have come as far as Antioch. And wherever they go, they are preaching the gospel. They're not sitting around and complaining about the fact that they've been driven out of their homes and out of their families, and they've lost their jobs and, 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 and friends and family members and No. Okay, so we've arrived in this new place. Now let's preach the gospel right here. But they were preaching to the Jews only, is what we read in verse 19. But then in verse 20, something changes. Here we see how Hellenistic Jews began to preach Christ to the Gentile Greeks. Read with me in verse 20. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. So some of the people that were being persecuted, some of the early believers that came to Antioch, were Hellenistic Jews. Hellenistic Jews means Greek-speaking Jews. So these were Jews, ethnic Jews, but not those who had been born and raised in the country of Israel, but outside of it, in the diaspora. Here, there were men of Cyprus, men of Cyrene. Cyrene was, is North Africa. So these had come out of Jewish communities in those faraway countries, and they had come to Jerusalem, heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were saved. They became followers of Christ. And now they, too, are being persecuted, and they end up in Antioch. 
And it is once they come to Antioch that for the first time, it is these Greek-speaking Jews who start preaching, who start evangelizing the Gentiles. It says the Grecians, non-Jews. They started to evangelize the Greeks. This is happening in Antioch, which at this point in time was the furthest outpost from Jerusalem and also the newest and least experienced one. And it is right there, far away in Antioch, that they had truly understood the how of the Great Commission. How was this going to be brought about? By outreach, essentially. What was driving them? It's not spelled out in our text, but we can be sure that it was the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ telling them, urging them to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And it was a burden for lost souls that caused them to do so. So now the Gentile, the, 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 the Greek-speaking Jews were preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. And God is greatly blessing it. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. When it says the hand of the Lord was with them, that's just another way of saying that the Lord was really blessing them. He was empowering them. So what they were saying really had an impact on their audience. So that these Gentiles indeed heard the gospel and believed it. That's what it says. Many Gentiles believed and turned unto the Lord. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. So as they believed the gospel, they turned away from their sinful lives and they now turned unto the Lord. These are real spirit-worked conversions among the Gentiles. Something beautiful is happening here. Something remarkable is happening here. Here we have the church in Antioch, and for the first time we see now a Jewish community, what was essentially a Jewish community, starting to reaching out to the Gentiles, and the, Jew, the Gentiles are being brought into the kingdom of God. But now the question... What was the greatest danger to the church in Antioch at this particular moment? And that brings us to our second point. The work of the spirits among the Gentiles recognized. So we see in our passage, the next thing that happens is that the church of Jerusalem decides to examine what is happening in Antioch. We read this in verse 22. Then tidings of these things came into the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch. So the church in Jerusalem, they had heard the rumors. They had heard the rumors of what was happening in Antioch, how the Gentiles were being reached out to, how the Gentiles were being evangelized and brought into the church. Now we need to remember that this is happening after 
the church in Jerusalem had heard Peter's testimony. And after they had drawn the conclusion that God had granted repentance unto the Gentiles. So they seemed to be not too concerned, but nevertheless, they sent Barnabas. And Barnabas is to go to Antioch. But the way he is to go, it says here, he is to go to traverse there. He's going to go from place to place to place. He's going to visit all these new church plants until he arrives in Antioch. So it's not that the church is saying, Barnabas, you've got to go straightway there and correct whatever it is that's happening there. No, they sent him indeed to, to check. As we would like to say, trust, but verify. But he sent, nevertheless, to go to Antioch. But then Barnabas arrives in Antioch. And when he sees what the Holy Spirit is at work, what the Holy Spirit is doing in this community, he greatly rejoices. Verse 23, who, Barnabas, when he came and had seen the grace of God, was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. So first of all, when Barnabas had seen the grace of God, Barnabas recognized the grace of God among those Gentiles. Now, don't read over that too quickly. Barnabas might have been a Greek-speaking Jew, but he was nevertheless a Jew who was born and raised in a Jewish community. In these Old Testament rituals and religion. And for Barnabas now to enter into this community and to see as it were in the pews, all of a sudden, these aliens, these complete strangers, these foreigners, these different-looking people, he had to peer through his Jewish bias in order to recognize that God was indeed at work among those strangers, those strangers who no doubt had come in with almost no knowledge about the whole Old Testament, whose confessions of faith must have been very rudimentary, very simple. But Barnabas nevertheless somehow recognized that it was was the work of God. He saw genuine spirit-worked faith among those Gentiles. And he recognized how God was beginning to fulfill his promises that the gospel would go out to all the nations. He recognized it. And once he recognizes, he greatly rejoices. And this, again, I would argue, is the highlight of this passage. That when he saw the grace of God among the Gentiles, he rejoices. There was no jealousy in Barnabas' heart when God now started to speak to people from outside his community. Could it really be that God would work among these strangers? Barnabas saw it, and he was exceeding glad. 
And then he recognizes his task. It says that he spent some time there teaching them and exhorting them, building them up in the faith. And then what does he do? What is it that he's exhorting them to do? Okay, now you're in our church. You've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now it's time for you to get circumcised. And here's the laws of Moses. And from here on, we're going to do things the correct way. Is that what he's teaching them? No. He's telling them to abide in the faith. To abide in that same faith wherewith they had been saved. That faith of, in Jesus Christ, their Savior. That's what he's exhorting them to do. And here we see God's providence. How it was the Holy Spirit who, who caused the church in Jerusalem to send somebody like Barnabas. In verse 24, it says, For he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. Barnabas, humanly speaking, was the right man for the job. He himself was a Greek-speaking Jew. It says that he was from Cyprus. As a Greek-speaking Jew, as a Hellenistic Jew, he most likely had more exposure to, to Gentiles around him than any Jew would have had who had been born and raised in Israel. But it also says that he was a good man. And good here is, is, means, has this, um, it means gentle, amiable, kind, and generous. And that, too, we know about Barnabas. He was generous. He was financially generous when he sacrificed a plot of land and took the money and gave it to the church. But not only was he gener financially generous, he was also spiritually generous. Barnabas was a man... He's known as, as one who was encouraging. He was the one who would give people second chances. As you continue reading in the book of Acts, he was the one who would give John Mark a second chance after John Mark had abandoned Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. Barnabas was a spiritually generous man in that he was not too quick to condone and condemn. I mean to condemn. Instead, he was desirous, he knew, he was desirous to help people along the way, to build them up in the faith. And at this point, we might be tempted to say Barnabas, oh, he was just such a special character, such, such a kind and unique, just such a kind man. But then it says in our text that he was full of the Holy Ghost. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Barnabas was so exceptional in and of himself. It means that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. But how can someone be filled with the Holy Spirit? It's not about doing certain tricks or something that just falls upon you. 
To be full of the Holy Ghost is to, first of all, be filled with the Word of God. Barnabas knew Scripture. But Barnabas also believed Scripture. And because he believed Scripture, that Scripture was empowered by the Holy Ghost and it had transformed him, making him Christ-like. To be filled with the Holy Ghost is to be directed by the Word of God and to be Christ-like. It made him spiritually discerning. He knew the true marks of saving grace, and he also knew what it was not. He knew what to look for when he entered into this community. And he discerned the work of the Holy Spirit in others because he first and foremost experienced it himself. You see, if the church of Jerusalem had sent some miserly, legalistic Judaist, that person would have come to Antioch and would have nipped this movement right in the bud. And as you continue reading through the book of Acts and through the epistles, you know that there were such characters in Jerusalem. Some of them were former Pharisees who would come and impose Judaism upon believers. That person would have come to Antioch and it would have seen the grace of God among the Gentiles and, and probably recognized it. But then it would be like, okay, well, let's wait and see if this is real. Now, here's the book of Moses. You get circumcised. You start doing all these things. And then we know that your faith is, your faith is really real. This is what would have been the greatest danger to the church in Antioch. But it was by the Holy Spirit who caused the church of Jerusalem to send someone <coughs> spiritually discerning and spiritually generous in that they sent Barnabas. So then the next question is, what is that spiritual generosity going to do? How is that going to make a difference in the church as this church continues to grow? And that we will see in our final point, the Christian church established. So we see that after Barnabas had arrived and he'd been teaching this church for a little bit, more Gentiles were continuing to be added unto the church. In verse 24 we read, in, the, in the, the second part of the verse, and much people was added unto the Lord. So this church has now benefited from Barnabas' exhortation, from his teaching. But rather than sitting back at this point and, and saying to Barnabas, how about you teach us some more? We, we, we need a lot more practice. No, they kept momentum. They kept 
evangelizing. They had not arrived. They needed to keep witnessing. And the Lord kept on blessing it. More and more people were being added unto the church. And as this church grows, Barnabas, realizing his own limitations, refuses to seek his own honor and started to recognize how Paul could really be of help here. This we read in verse 25 and verse 26. Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. So Barnabas sets off to Tarsus to seek Saul. And the word that's being used here is really a seeking all over the place. And it seems that from, from the letter in Gala- uh, to the Galatians, we later can pick up that, that when Paul went to Tarsus, he actually went to the region there. And, and most likely he was going around preaching the gospel in the synagogues. So Barnabas had a hard time finding him. He was chasing him all over the region. He knew. He knew Paul. He had, Barnabas had introduced Paul to the church community in Jerusalem. He knew Paul's background. He knew Paul's intellectual capacities. He knew Paul to also be a Hellenistic Jew, a Greek-speaking Jew. But most importantly, Barnabas must have recognized the fact that the Lord had called Paul, or Saul, to become an evangelist to the nations, to the Gentiles. And now this is exactly what's happening in Antioch. The Gentiles are being evangelized. So Barnabas remembers, Paul, he needs to be here. He needs to work here. So he starts seeking him, and he seeks him all over. Now, halfway during that journey, Barnabas could have said, That's enough. I can't find him. I'm going back home. I'm going back to Antioch. Had Barnabas done this at this point, he would have been the sole authority in that church in Antioch. He would have been the most important man. But Barnabas was not seeking his own honor. He was seeking to fulfill the needs of the congregation. And therefore, he wanted Paul to be there, and he would not give up until Paul had arrived. So he finally finds him, and he brings him into Antioch, and together, we read in our text, they were ministering to the church, teaching them and exhorting them. Together. It's also not that Paul then comes barging in and immediately claims authority. No, they were serving the church together. We see here again Christ-like leadership to a young and zealous church. And it is in these circumstances that they were teaching the church for about a year that the, first, that the church is starting to become established. They grow. They start to gather on a regular basis. They started worshiping together. And as they do so, and as they are growing... Now they start to become visible to the society around them. 
And it is at this point that we see from a passage that the first Christian church was established in Antioch. In Antioch, where this whole movement had begun with outreach to the Gentiles. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, is what we read. Now, why is that so important? Why is that so significant? When you take a look at the society, this ancient society was very hierarchical. It was a class society. And it is in this class society that all of a sudden you have this group of people. It's a motley crew of people from all walks of life. If you were to read in the opening verses of Acts 13, they give you a list of the leaders of this church. It shows Barnabas and Saul, but also Simeon Niger. And as his name suggests, the man was most likely from sub-Saharan Africa, meaning he was black. Then there is Lucius of Cyrene. We might have been from Cyrene, but his name is a very Latin Roman name, meaning he was most likely an ethnic Roman. And then we read about Manaean. Manaean was a relative to Herod. He was royalty. That's the leadership of this church. You could look at this, this group of people and you try to put a label on it. Who are they? Well, they're no longer a club of the Jews because they are now including Gentiles. They cannot be a club of the socially oppressed because here is Herod's relative in this church, royalty. It can't be exclusively about slaves or about free or about Roman citizens or about Greeks or highly educated or blue-collar people. They couldn't find a label for them. And not only so, here's this group of people in this class society. Now, in this society, if you were from different classes, you would not associate with one another. Romans and Greeks did not associate with Jews or the other way around. Slaves would not associate with the free. But here's this group of people, and somehow they all get together, and they all get along, and they all love each other. What was the glue that kept these people together? It was to the astonishment of this segmented and hierarchical society. And they gave them the label Christian. Little Christs is what that literally means. It was not common to give to assign labels of religions to groups of people. 
in this day and age. Because the Romans tried to do everything to mingle religion because they were afraid of uprisings. And yet here you have a group of people that is named not only after their religion, but especially after the one thing that they had in common, namely the leader, Jesus Christ. That was the one thing that they had in common. And yet that was the very thing that glued them together, that made them to love one another, even though they were from completely different walks of life. This was a necessary fruit of the Holy Spirit. This, this group of people, they weren't pursuing diversity for the sake of diversity. But with their burden for soul, they were, doing, they were evangelizing other people indiscriminately. Whether you were Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, free or slave. Roman or Greek, it didn't matter. They were all souls that had to be reached for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And this is how we ended up with this group. A group that could, give, that could be given no other label than that of Christian. So what have we seen so far? <clears throat> We've seen how the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is directing this church. Throughout the book of Acts, we know that the book of Acts is about what Jesus continues to do in the church. And this is very clear evidence of this, that through His Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus is continuing to direct the church. He's providentially pushing <coughs> the, Gentile, the, the, the early believers into Gentile areas. And then he's urging these Greek-speaking Jews to start evangelizing the Gentiles. And then the church sends Barnabas. And Barnabas, being full of the Holy Ghost, comes into Antioch, sees this new movement, and rejoices. And encourages and exhorts them to abide in the faith. And then as the new disciples are being strengthened by Barnabas and Paul... They continue to witness in the society. And as a result, you have now a Christian church. The disciples in Antioch were called Christians. And the Christian church has become an established fact, even until this very day. How did Antioch differ from Jerusalem? Jerusalem questioned Peter's actions. And as you read through the rest of the book of Acts and you read through the epistles, you see how it is particularly in Jerusalem that the struggle against legalism and Judaism persists. Antioch, meanwhile came to understand the how of the Great Commission. Not by trying to draw in the Gentiles and making them Jews, but by going out to the Gentiles and evangelizing them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Jerusalem would soon become irrelevant. As they are battling these legal and doctrinal battles, Antioch soon would be sending out the first missionaries into the world. And over the years and centuries to come, Antioch would be the center of Christianity of the ancient world. How does that apply to us? Who do we want to be? In this era, post-Pentecost, do we desire to be Jerusalem or Antioch? When you read a passage like this, as a professing believer, does it stir your heart when you see the kingdom of Jesus Christ grow in this manner? Would you wish to have the boldness of these early evangelists who for the first time started to reach out to these aliens, to these foreigners, to these strangers. I'm jealous of that spirit. What about you? And would you not wish to have that Christ-like, loving character of Barnabas, the encourager, who recognized the true marks of grace, who was so spiritually generous, who was not quick to condemn or to keep people at an arm's length until they would first prove their faith, but instead embraced them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And do you wish for your church to be such a manifestation of Christian love? Which I do believe is manifest here, by the way. But would you look at this church in Antioch and desire for us to continue to grow in that direction? Because our society is really not at all that different from the society 2,000 years ago in Antioch. Our society, especially here, is diverse. It is secular. It is materialistic. And especially in these last couple years, we've come to know that it is also very, very divided and polarized. Just like it was in ancient days in Antioch. Antioch was a cosmopolitan city. It was sitting on the trade. It was the New York of back then. It was sitting at the beginning of the Silk Road. There was trade routes going through all the ancient world coming through Antioch. 
We need that church. We need a church like Antioch in our day and age. Evangelists, leaders like Paul and Barnabas, and churches like Antioch. The question is, can our society look at our church, your church and my church in Grand Rapids, can they look at our church and have no other label to put on you than that of Christian? Or would you rather have your church be labeled by the very thing that makes us special and sets us apart, but also that excludes others? We are Dutch Reformed. And an outsider driving by knows that you're Dutch Reformed, and they are not Dutch Reformed. Might think that they're not welcome here. We are conservative. We are this, we are that. Or do we desire our church to be a Christian church like Christ with open arms to receive everyone? And it's encouraging for me to come here and to see this happening which is a great blessing. But we need to consider more importantly still that the church is made up of individual members. So for a church to be a Christian church, its members, you and I, have to be Christians. So that drives the question even closer to home. Can strangers... Outsiders, your colleagues, your peers in school, the cashiers at the grocery shop. Can these outsiders look at you and being able to put but one label on you? There goes a Christian. Can that be said of us? That we're not first and foremost conservative, Republicans, Dutch Reformed, or whatever it is that we like to identify ourselves by. Can the world look at us and see first and foremost, there goes a Christian, a little Christ, That is extremely challenging, isn't it? This morning we looked at what God is doing in our lives, in His sovereignty, how He is transforming us, and that we believe. But this night, this passage is telling us, and it's pointing us that to our responsibility. This is what we are to pursue in this life. Now, when we read about this early church, and particularly what's happening here in Antioch, but also the other records of the early church in Jerusalem, how they came into being, how they were sharing one another, loving one another, 
it, it presents us with a level of Christianity that almost seems idealistic. And we wonder, can we really achieve that kind of benchmark? Because they're way up there. We knew those churches weren't perfect. But they were sure examples of what a Christian church ought to be like. Where are we? Can we reach that level? And when we look at those churches in the book of Acts, we would be very prone to start looking at the leaders. Well, they had the 12 apostles who had been with Jesus, and and then along comes Barnabas, and he's just such an exquisite character. And then comes Paul, this brilliant theologian. We're not like that. We're not that special. But we need to realize that it doesn't take extraordinary characters or extraordinary skills for a church to be a Christian church. Going back to Barnabas, verse 24 says, he was full of the Holy Ghost. And that wasn't just true of Barnabas. It was also true of those initial evangelists who went out to the Gentiles. They too were full of the Holy Ghost. And so was Paul. And so were the apostles. They were full of the Holy Ghost. They did not have those traits of themselves. They were spirit-worked. They had become Christ-like, and now they were using their skills to the advance of His kingdom. But first and foremost, they were transformed by the Holy Spirit. It was by grace that they were who they were in this church. We need to realize, Pentecost initiated a new era in which the Holy Spirit as we have seen, is empowering the church to bring about this great harvest. And that Holy Spirit, who who equipped the apostles, who equipped Barnabas, who equipped the evangelists, who equipped Paul, is still as much available to us. We're still in that same era And it will be that same era until the Lord Jesus Christ come back from the cloud. That Holy Spirit is as much available to you and I as He was to the apostles. So what does it take to be filled with the Holy Ghost? It is to be saturated with with, with the Word of God and then to let that direct your life and transform you so that you may become Christ-like. The question is, is that what you want? Do you desire to be Christ-like? Do you desire to be bold? to be spiritually generous and loving, having that burden for souls, then we need to seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? 
tricks, praying for God for some kind of experience that would radically alter the course of your life? No. To be filled by the Holy Spirit is done by diligent use of the means of grace. By letting the Word of God saturate you and fill your life. By praying for the light of the Holy Spirit as you use the means of grace. By diligently coming to the house of the Lord to worship Him. By seeking to obey God, even when He gives directives in His Word that go against the flesh. And as you then seek to be transformed in the image of Christ, then also be purposeful about seeking to be transformed so that He may use you in the advance of His kingdom. Praying to the Lord that He would equip you for a calling in His kingdom, wherever He decides to place you. Understanding that not everybody is called to the ministry, to go on the pulpit, or to go overseas into missions. But maybe God has reserved some other task for you. That's what makes a church a Christian church. This level of idealistic Christianity that is put before us, particularly in this passage, is not for us to have a benchmark way up there and just to look at it and to stand in awe and then to come to the conclusion that we cannot attain to that. We should be pursuing. We should be pursuing that example that is set before us. That, le- that, that example that is set before us is a call to our self-examination to discern our motives. Because what so often stands in the way is not a lack of skills, but a lack of desire. We've grown so comfortable down here below, and I will include myself in this. Is there a desire for us not to establish our own kingdoms here below, but to be laboring in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, who himself sacrificed, who who sacrificed himself for us. Are we now willing to sacrifice ourselves for him? This is about his kingdom and not ours. And it is for that reason that we are called upon to sacrifice our life, a living sacrifice to Him. To come out of our comfort zones, to make sacrifices, to sacrifice our pride, our egos, It doesn't mean that we all get to go home now and grab a megaphone and go stand on the street corners of New York City. Where we need to begin is with ourselves. 
We need to seek to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, praying that he would use us in his kingdom so that the day may come when he sees it fit for you to go out to your respective position that you may be ready to be a witness for him. That's my prayer for myself. And I hope it's your prayer for you as well. That God would use you, not to build our own little empires, but that God would use us as instruments to build his kingdom. Because if that is not your desire at all, then ask yourself whether you be in the faith or not. Because if Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for you, how worthy is it that we sacrifice ourselves for him? That's the challenge that's being posed to us this evening. Pentecost is about the first fruits. The harvest is truly great and the laborers are few. And laborers here is not just talking about ministers and missionaries. We are all called to be laborers in this harvest in one respect or another. And yet we can comfort ourselves with this knowledge. As we heard this morning, God is sovereign. Jesus Christ is still on the throne. He is still gathering in his church, whether it be with us or without us. That we know for sure. But the challenge to us comes this evening to be filled with that same Holy Spirit of Pentecost and to join our fellow saints of the ancient church of Antioch in the ingathering of Christ's church because he's worth it. Because Jesus Christ is worth everything. Amen. Lord God and Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, we've been presented, Lord, with the truth, with the example that is placed before us of the early church. We know, Lord, that in and of themselves they were not special. You equipped them, strengthened them, caused them to be witnesses of Christ. We pray, Lord, that thou wouldst work among us in similar fashion, that a revival would begin again among us. Lord, help us to sacrifice our lives confessing, Lord, that we so often, so often neglect this great task to build the kingdom of Christ because we're so busy building our own kingdoms. Stir us, O Lord, by thy Spirit. Make us more Christ-like that we may honor thee by being thine ambassadors here below. 
Father, wilt thou please be with us for the remainder of this week? Wilt thou keep us safe, give traveling mercies, especially also for those who are traveling on vacation? Help us, O Lord, to live out these realities wherever we are. And Lord, wilt thou take none of us away unprepared to meet thee? Cleanse us again, O Lord, from our sins, even during this worship service. And bless thou thy word unto our hearts, to the glorification of our Lord and Savior and King, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.